Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Paul. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have just warmed each other up. We're nice and chatty. I've got my, uh, I think this is my second cup of coffee in my hand, and uh, it's a bright Monday morning and we're ready to have a pretty cool conversation. I'm delighted that you're on here. Looking forward to hearing about your book. Uh, But before we dive into our conversation, Paul, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hey, everybody. I'm Paul D'Alessandro. I um, live just outside of Metro New York City area, and I've been at this business for you know over 25 years. So I'm just delighted to be on here with you. 
Yeah, Paul. So uh, before we get started, for my for my listeners, Paul has written a book uh, that we're going to talk about here in a few minutes. I've got a question I want to tee up with here in a moment, Paul. But Paul's book is The Future of Fundraising, How Philanthropy's Future is Here, and Donors Dictate the Terms. Paul, I'm going to want to hear all about that. But before we do, uh, one of the things I was kind of interested, I noticed uh, as you were giving me a little bit of your history, um, and, and I've, I think I've heard this from probably a handful of people, uh, people who could get on to, uh, you know, you, you were trained as an attorney, you're a trained attorney mm-hmm. and, uh, and then you landed in fundraising. And I've probably heard that from, uh, you know, maybe a half a dozen people on the podcast and probably heard that numerous times throughout my career is that we get on these, uh, professional tracks, you know, intention intended to do one thing and we end up in fundraising. Why is that your story? I'm curious. Well, you know, I, um, I was at the business school at the University of Notre Dame, and I um, was told that, you know, Paul, you know, um, I think he ought to become a lawyer. I think he'd do a really good job at being a lawyer. And and I kind of like, well, why is that? Well, you have a gift to gap, you know, get along with people. And, yeah. I, you know, so I didn't really have a path um, coming out of Notre Dame. So I said, I'm just, I think becoming a lawyer would be a great thing to do. And I got into law school, and I really didn't enjoy it. As most lawyers will tell you, I mean, the tedium of reading case law and, and writing trial briefs and all that. But I, I gave it a good go. And I, I said, well, after I got out, I think I was 25. I'd passed New York, New Jersey, Florida bars. And I said, I don't think I want to do this. So I want to work with Deloitte in their international tax consulting department. So which, which put me in touch with a lot of high net worth donors, uh, you know, because I understood stood money. And I got a call from um, University of Notre Dame, the business school. And they said, hey, we, you know, we're doing a $350 million campaign. We think you'd be great as a fundraiser. And I didn't know anything about fundraising. I said, well, the law didn't show me what I had thought it would, which is there is equity in the system. I, I found like money bought justice. And so I said, I'm going to give this fundraising thing a shot. And so I, I left the law, though I still am actively, I still have active bars in practice you know, because it has served me well. And, um, and it serves me well too, in, in, especially in this fundraising field. And, and I, I've enjoyed it. And I found that I can help many more people in, in this fundraising world. So Paul, you have written a book that caught my attention and uh, it's called The Future of Fundraising. And uh, as I shared with you before I hit the record button, I think you used the word collapse in an article recently that you were talking about um, I also think that you and I uh, have may, maybe you've talked to Lisa Greer, a mutual friend. You guys are both mm-hmm. writing about some of the same stuff, and she's been here on the podcast. And I, perhaps the three of us all speak a very common language. So uh, tell us what the big idea is. So, yeah, and uh, Lisa's great. I was with her at a conference in Philadelphia, and I we caught up last week. Um, the big idea was this that fundraisers in this space really need to have an eye on what's going on. And, and that whole thought was the future of fundraising is, is now. And a lot of those things centered on how artificial intelligence is impacting the work that we do and technology and what's going on in, on the legal side with respect to donor privacy laws. And um, you know, how is blockchain and crypto going to affect the work that we do? Also, um, the, so the big idea is, look, if you keep doing things the way you've been doing them in the past and looking at past data to kind of predict what the future is going to be, you're going to miss the, the activities that you need to be engaged in. Because 
And what I've been telling everybody is fundraising happens now in real time. Data happens instantaneously. You know, just take a look. If something happens around the world, um, there's an immediate fundraise for somebody and people are sh- shipping money over to whatever that causes, even in the United States. And, and that's a lot of that is because of the tech, pla- the tech platforms that are out there. And my, my, the eventuality is that, you know, we, we spend a lot of time looking for donors, but artificial intelligence is going to help the donors find the charities, put up the metrics. And I even envision a point where someone could put $5,000 in a fund and artificial, artificial intelligence will tell that person based on what they look at on their, um, their platforms, um, where that money should be given to which charities locally and, and it, how much based on the metrics of how that nonprofit is performing. Does the, <clears throat> is that what the donor wants? Well, you know, my last chapter of my book is kind of the do- donor intent, you know, and so yeah, yeah. I've had that, I have been on over 4,000 solicitation calls and, you know, it's changed throughout the years, you know, early on, there weren't so much questions about, you know, where the money's going. But now the donor wants to have impact. They yeah. want to see what the return on investment is. Yeah. And they want, you know, they want to do good in the world. And so there's a great frustration with nonprofits and and they're they kind of move really slow. So some donors are like, you know, I don't I don't think I really need to do it through a nonprofit. I'm I'm gonna do a social impact investing and I can get a return on my dollar doing that. Or they might have um, just start a small um, business. I'm talking to some folks up in Connecticut. They're starting a school for some laborers. We talked a lot about starting a nonprofit. And they said, you know what? We just bought a, a warehouse. We're going to train some uh, folks who really couldn't get jobs on how to do a certain work. And I don't want to give it away. And, um, you know, that money generated is going to be used just to give back to keep the the program going. So donors, and that's my whole thing, donors are driving the change in the space. And if the nonprofit sector isn't listening, they're going to miss it. And that, you know, one of the things we talk about is mergers and collaboration. There's too many nonprofits in this space. I started in the 80s, there were 400,000 nonprofits. Now there's over 1.6 million. And I don't even know if that counts the churches. Okay. So you, you, you started off the conversation a little bit there a few minutes ago, and I, I got to ask you this because I haven't talked a whole lot about this on the podcast, but um, Doc Searles, one of the guys that wrote, was part of the Clue Train Manifesto guys that wrote the book in the, I think that was the late nineties. You talk about privacy, for example, one of the things that it docks up at um, Searles is up at, uh, at Harvard, and he's been talking about this system, what, what's known as VRM. And it's the idea that essentially when it comes to privacy, we're going to get to the place where technology is going to enable the, the consumer, or in our case, the donor, to basically flip the switch on our access to their name or to their information. So which is to say, basically, that let's say your name's in a CRM at a, the American Cancer Society, for example, that we're going to get to a place where privacy laws are going to enable that donor to basically just sort of literally, literally log in, flip a switch, push a button, hit a tab or something, and and their name basically exits your Exit, exit your CRM. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's been talked about so much so that, um, you know, the donor will actually own his own, right. um, his own name and rights and can choose, like you said, who will be able to have access to it or not. You know, you have the GDPR in Europe and you've had, yes. you know, what's happened that the laws in, you know, 
in California, New York, and New Jersey, and the 990 Schedule Bs and, you know, identification of donors. And donors, the you know, more and more donors realizing how much information is out there about them, and they don't want that information out about them. So, you know, it's not, this is not, again, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And, and the big issue is for those people who sell mailing lists, you know, like a Facebook and a Google, they own all that data. I mean, yeah. you're you're on their site. You know, you're not going to be able to get away from it unless you turn Facebook and Google off, which I, I don't see people doing, or meta, as they say. Yeah. But, you know, you, you know, people who buy big mail lists, you know, aren't going to be able to do that without the names doing exactly what you said, which was, did the donor give me permission to use my name? And, it, and still, and right now, today, if a donor walked into your charity and said, I want to see whatever information you have on me, they theoretically or technically they can do that. So, you know, I caution my nonprofits to say, look, you know, be careful what you put in that CRM. You, you like typically you see, see somebody say, you know, I saw so-and-so the other day, you know, they're, they've got uh, financial issues and they said, this isn't a good time. You know, do you really, though a helpful, do you really now need to put that in the database? And then, then we can get into the whole issue of cybersecurity and, and hacks into nonprofits data. And then what's out there. I mean, Blackwood still got like class action suits going against them for the hack that they got a few years back. Okay, so and that leads into what my concern is about the uh, so Lisa Greer, for example, we're both familiar with her stuff. We're familiar mm-hmm. with her book. Um, <clears throat> so some of the some of the people that I would call the fundraising wizards out there took took issue with some of the things that Lisa was saying in her book. And I thought, you know what? I don't care what Lisa says in her book. She's a major donor. She's part of the 1%. And she's basically publishing a book with a mainline publisher. And she's got Seth Godin giving her an endorsement on the mm-hmm. front of her book. Yeah. She knows how to get this stuff out there. And you're completely missing the point. It really doesn't matter what she's saying. How about you just acknowledge that she's doing it to begin with? And so if you think about like what you're talking about with privacy issues, issues. What happens when a donor, when you basically get Lisa, Lisa Greer 2.0, who publishes a book that basically says some hospital violated my privacy rights and every major donor in the country starts buying her book. I mean, yeah, isn't no. that, ba- isn't that the point of what essentially we need? We need to sort of be looking through the critique rather than at the critique itself in some cases. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. Who's, con- you know, who's controlling the message and all that. I mean, I envision at some point, a major class action suit against somebody, you know, maybe it's uh, American Red Cross or some major nonprofit because there's, you know, a disenfranchisement on the part of the donors and the charity didn't do what they said they were going to do. You know, I hear stories all the time, especially in terms of when there's like a major crisis in the country and, you know, nonprofits showing up, but there's more window dressing, like empty, you know, trucks are showing going down, but there's no food in the trucks or something like that. And so, (laughs) so some donors is going to say, well, you know, I, I want my money back. I don't think that's right. I mean, we did a a church campaign in Florida. I'll never forget something happened in the church and one of the donors wanted their money back. And the uh, executive director of the foundation said, should I do that? I said, no. Well, she decided to do it anyway. I said, you're going to open up a Pandora's box. And sure enough, every neighbor on that street who gave money to the church started asking for their money back. And so just take that, extrapolate that. Like, again, it's not a matter of if, it's a when. I mean, lawyers are going to make a lot of money on a class action suit against a major nonprofit at some point. So, so what is your advice? So one of the questions I like to ask when I've got a guy on here, guy or gal on here, who's 
basically really thought about this carefully and critically. And let's say we're at an, an AFP meeting and you've got a fundraiser who's like two years into their career and you're reflecting on, you're sort of reflecting on what it is you said in your book. What are you saying to that person? Cause that's a lot of my listeners. A lot of my listeners are probably no more than five to 10 years into their career. In some cases are two to three years into their career. They've picked up on, they've, they're following me say on social media and they're basically sort of getting a sense that, Hey, this guy's talking about some pretty bold stuff. Um, what are you saying to that uh, two to three year? You know, this person's not even like this person might be 25, 28 years old. I mean, they they don't even know if they've sort of bought in soul, you know, hook, line and sinker on fundraising. What are you saying to them? So I'm, I'm telling them, pay attention and yeah. that it's not as simple as meets as meets the eye. You know, a lot of people have gotten into this space because of a heart and a desire to not work in the private sector not work in the government sector, but to do some greater good, you know, and there's always, it's, it never, never is what it seems to be, but be that as it may, you know, if you, if a lawyer, you know, comes into a boardroom, you know what the lawyer does. If an accountant does, you know what the accountant does, but you know, fundraisers, they come, I, you know, it's kind of like, uh, maybe I'm dating myself in age, you know, Rudolph the red nosed reindeer, you know, we had Christmas two months ago or so, and you know, it's the Island of Misfit Toys. And I kind of see that as all the fundraisers because, you know, you were a recovering addict. You started a nonprofit. You know, you were right, right. an ex-felon, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> and so nobody really has the same um, base for sports. So they go to places like the AF, AFP and other avenues to try and learn the space. But you can't absorb all the information is out there. So I think the person that's being hired in a nonprofit, especially in a fundraising role, really needs to be um, tech savvy, needs to understand that it's not just about, you know, going out and raising money, but you have to understand, you know, human resource, you have to understand legal, you have to understand how a business runs. And um, you really need to understand kind of how money works, especially with high net worth donors. So it's not the way it was years ago. And so, it's it's a this is a learned experience, you know, and and for us as fundraisers, you know, a lot of knowledge I got came from some early failures, you know, and so we fail our way to success, especially with donors, because donors teach us how to behave. I've got a friend of mine, you may know her, uh, Jennifer Harris. She's in San Diego and mm-hmm. she uses the word, uh, Jennifer was quoted in an article in the Chronicle, same art, same article that I was quoted in 2019 about sort of why fundraisers are sort of fed up. And she used the word betrayed. I've been sitting on that word sort of betrayed. Do you think there's a lot of us, when you think about what you said in your book, do you think there's a lot of us out there who sort of get into this work, like this, this young person that, that I'm referring to, do you think we feel, but, and, and, and you said it a few minutes ago, that's probably what sort of triggered the thought, you know, we, we come in and this is, this is exactly what Jennifer says. She says, we come into this work because we sort of want to, we're exiting the marketplace. We deliberately want to sort of do hard work. We want to do something that sort of is aligns with our passions. We want to be compassionate people, but in some ways or in some ways or another fundraising seems particularly well suited to basically sort of let us down in that particular area. What's your thoughts on that? You know, I, I don't know as if trade would be the word, but it would come close. I think yeah. it's more a lack of, um, understanding of what is involved in the job yeah. by the people who are hiring on the boards. And I'll give you a perfect example. When I got hired at Notre Dame, 
you know, I, I really didn't want to spend time traveling a lot. You know, I was hired to run the whole Southeast region of the United States. And I remember I asked the development, the, the, my boss at the time, I said, you know, is there a lot of travel? And he said, yeah, maybe 20, 30%. After three years, I looked at, I took my counter and I flew up to Notre Dame. I said, I've been gone 60 and 70% of the time because I've got a big area to cover. And I don't think that he misled me, betrayed. I just think he was uninformed about the work that's needed to be done to be successful because you really need to be out on the road. Now, if you're a local, you know, if you're a local charity, you still need to be out on the street talking to people and networking. This is not, as another consultant once says, you know, you don't want a a fundraiser sitting flying a desk. You know, you have to be out there. I mean, I got 3 million miles in the air, you know, just from all the work that I've been doing. So, so I don't think it's so much a betrayal. I just think it's a lack of people understanding what's involved in the job. And it's different from nonprofit to nonprofit. Uh, Just another example, you know, you get hired as a major gift officer, but there's no major gift prospect portfolio. So someone will hire you and they'll, they want you to go out and raise money, but a sophisticated major gift officer might say, well, who's, do you have a prospect portfolio list for me to work on? Well, no, we hadn't thought about that. Right. So, yeah, that's <laughs> what, like, what is that? I, I think you're the first guest, uh, and, and and I think I think there's a lot of people who sort of have a savviness like you and I are sort of exchanging here. But I think that's the first time that somebody's ever sort of articulated it so accurately of what the problem is. Because I'm oftentimes saying to the to, to clients who are the least experienced, they're like, "We want to hire a major gifts officer who's going to go out there and and." Uh, you know, raise major gifts for us. And I'm like, well, do you have a list for them? Do you have some people in mind? Do you have some infrastructure? (laughs) There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things that sort of go into place uh, before that works. Uh, Paul, the the reason you came on my radar, there was an article, I think it was in the, I think it was a nonprofit pro pro, Mm -hmm. and you use the word collapse in the article. And I've been looking at uh, Joseph Tainter during the pandemic. I was reading a lot about Joseph Tainter and those of you who are familiar with Tainer, he's basically the guy that basically talks a lot about how social complexity ultimately arrives at collapse. And so when you use the word collapse in some reference in that article, it sort of caught my attention. So what was that about? Well, you know, there's, uh, like I said, I think there's too many nonprofits in this space. You know, everyone yeah. has, it's just like, you know, everyone has a right to start their own business. And what is a nonprofit? It's, it's a business. Yeah. But, you know, I look back, you know, I was, it's funny, I signed a contract with a nonprofit, uh, we had done a bunch of work in New Orleans and uh, signed a contract two weeks before uh, Hurricane Katrina came by. And so it took me three months to figure out where to send the money back because that nonprofit got wiped out. But, you know, at the time, you know, about a third of the nonprofits, the the, the smaller ones kind of vaporized because there was, you know, it's one thing to have support within a community. But when the community actually gets wiped out and your donors become people who are in need, then it puts tremendous stress on the system. So I think there's a great vulnerability, at, at, at least for the smaller nonprofits, to um, actually lose um, their ability to operate. I mean, most of them don't operate with any financial reserve at all. And if we have and the whole, the article is really, if, if we have a financial con- um, crisis, yeah, um, that lasts longer than six months, and you know, I could see that happening, then, then it's going to devastate the lower level nonprofits. Now it's, it's happened in Europe. Um, Cause I talked with a bunch of European consultants and you know, like a third of the nonprofits are struggling, if not to go away. And a lot of money is being directed now towards advocacy, like big money gains on advocacy. 
So I just see is it I you know unless you're paying mind and um, attention to the house, I think there's going to be a real problem because you know we've been in good times financially um, as long as the market's up, and I I think there's going to be a day of reckoning for a lot of nonprofits if they're not paying attention. Is that fundamentally what part of the problem is? I mean, I teach I teach nonprofit management courses over at the local college, and I constantly and I'm routinely talking to my students about the idea that the nonprofit sector is sort of that sector that's supposed to make a lot of sense and really be at its best when the government and the marketplace can't step up to the plate and sort of do their job. And it seems like we've so much sort of tried to mimic, you know, you know what the government does or what the marketplace does. And it would seem to me like when you're talking about Hurricane Katrina, you know, shouldn't we have a business model? Shouldn't we have an operating model in the nonprofit sector that says when the, when everything goes to shit, that's when we should be at our best, not at our worst. I mean, when consumer confidence tanks shouldn't be the time when we say we can't pay the bills, that's probably also at a point when the world's going to need us the most, but we seem to have designed fundraising strategies shouldn't tank in the midst of the pandemic. They should actually, we should have had the forethought at some point to think through this stuff and say, if we mimic marketplace trends and just try to operate like a business, we're probably thinking in the wrong, wrong way. Am I right? Uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I, I, you know, people forget at the end of the day, a nonprofit's a business and business needs to generate revenue. And my feeling is that, you know, a nonprofit that relies solely on charitable donations is going to struggle a bit. I mean, take a look at, you know, and I mentioned in my book, we've done consulting with Habitat International, yeah. you know, a couple of years back, $400 million from the restores, you know, they're yes. doing goods for services, you know, look yeah. at Goodwill. a lot of nonprofits, even Wounded Warrior, you know, we've done some work with them, you know, they did, they make a lot of money. You know, selling. You know, when they when we initially started, bling. You know, it. But it's it's problematic for the nonprofits to be able to sustain themselves over the long term unless they have a, a strong contingency plan in times of of crisis. So, who are you saying? Um, in my first book, Paul, I was really deliberate about not sort of tackling the the board. I think I spent the most of my 20-year fundraising career sort of getting a little exhausted at how often we sort of point fingers at the board. And I thought, you know, for all this professionalism talk that we say we're professionalizing fundraising and we've got to have these, you know, credentials and associations and all this sort of stuff, we sure as hell point point our finger at the at the volunteers quite a bit. Who are you sort of saying – who, who in your mind is sort of most responsible for taking the lead on sort of getting us ready for, for all this sort of future talk that you're talking about? Well, I think it's, it's, it, it is both the board and the executive director. It's either or both, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, again, uh, boards, you know, we, we're going, going back to the fundraisers. You know, if, you, if I walk into a room and I ask the board to write down what the role of a fundraiser is on a piece of paper and put it in a hat, you know, if there's 10 people, I'm going to get like 10 different answers. Maybe, and, maybe 10 or 12. You know, it's like, I, I, you know, I felt I used to tell people about a fundraiser and, you know, I'd have people come up to me and say, you know, can you help us with our chocolate drive? And I'm like, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. But, you know, boards, you know, again, these are the proper part of the problem is we're dealing with antiquated models that haven't changed. So yeah. back in the late 80s, when, you know, there were some, it's either, yeah, the eighties when there were a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on, the nonprofit folks kind of looked at the side, go, wow, look what's going on there. They're consolidating, they're doing this. And they just kind of worked in their silos. So nonprofits kind of work in their silos and they didn't pay attention to that. So 
now, you know, what they do is it just blossomed and grew and grew and grew. And the boards, they need to have some sort of sophistication. But the, what I was saying is, in, as far as an antiqu- antiquated model is, where did this come from that the board, you know, needs to be the way it's structured and all these people? And again, it was set up before all this tech. Do we really need board members who for accountability, when we have tech that can provide all the accountability so the attorney general's offices can know exactly what's going on. For example, the attorney general in New York, they look at all the 990s, they know what nonprofits are going to have problems or not, regardless of what the board says. You know, so, um, you know, I think something something needs to change in terms of board because they can't act fast enough. I mean, so they might have money but they're, or they're well-intentioned, but they don't have the sophistication to deal with a complicated business like running a nonprofit. That's my opinion. Yeah, I'm probably right there with you. Has, 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 it, has it occurred to you at times, you know, this whole board, this whole question of boards? So my entire career, so I'm, I'm solidly right there in the middle of Generation X, and I spent my entire career working for boards that were basically consisted of baby boomers, right? Well, there's mm-hmm. twice as many baby boomers out there right now and always have been as my generation, Gen X. And I'm sitting, and we've got an organization downtown, for example, that, uh, here in my local community that always has had like 30 to 40 board members. They just, there's a health organization. They've just always, for some reason, had this enormous board for this small community-based organization. And they've historically for the last two generations been baby boomers. Well, there's not as many, there's not as many of my generation, you know, who's ready to occupy those 30 to 40 seats. I mean, is, is some of this going to sort of work itself out when you think about the future of fundraising is some of these, models that you talk about because there is there's a lot of critique i've got lots of critique on the sort of the different models is some of this just going to evolve as sort of demographics change I, yeah i, th- I think uh, demographics are going to cause a change i mean now look at you know the diversity you know inclusion yes and, yes you know, and all and all that you know have different boards so you know how to you know Boards were set up initially for accountability and governance, and then it became everybody had to become a fundraising board. And we realized that, you know, for a time, you know, when there weren't a lot of nonprofits, a fundraising board was a good idea. Now, you know, there's too, again, too many nonprofits and too many nonprofits looking for people with money to serve on boards. So it's going to have to work itself out because it's just, I, again, I, I don't know how it's going to sustain itself. And do and do we really do? Do you really need thirty to forty people right. on a board to help you figure out how to run an organization? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. if if you're, um, I, I mean, I, I don't know how many people Apple has on its board, but I'm pretty sure it's not thirty or forty people that have to tell them how to do their do their business. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, maybe it, I'm wrong, but yeah, and it, and it totally thins out the yeah, it's it's um. It, it totally thins out the, the what I know of the organization. It's a fine organization, but in terms of board commitment, you know, their board consists of primarily everybody else who's on everybody else's board in town. And uh, and I have to imagine that in some ways, the size of uh, that board in, in many ways sort of thins out the level of commitment that they get from any one individual, largely because they just sort of figure, hey, there's 39 other of me who can carry the carry the burden if I don't do my part. But so. I don't mean to. I'm just, you know, I just have this thought because, you know, I wanted to write a book about charity thieves. And, you know, part of these things like, you know, bad case law turn bad cases, create case law, you know. Yeah. And so it is such with, you know, having a board. Well, why do you want to have a lot of people on the board? Should it pre- prevent somebody from starting a charity and stealing money? Well, you know, a lot of people steal money anyway in, in, a, in a nonprofit sector. So, 
you know, there's, there's that, there's gotta be some accountability triggers so that doesn't happen, but we're all over the place on, you know, salaries and, um, you know, where money spent conflict of interest and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's with all that many charities and not enough, the, the federal government won't regulate it. That's why the, it's all pushed down on the states into their AG's office, the attorney general's offices, you know, and they got their hands full too. Yeah. So I, I always ask to, when I, when I get an author on here, I always like to ask these two questions. Before I let you go, I'll ask these two questions, sort of a, a shift in the conversation. But I'm always curious when I talk to an author, because I've learned how to do some writing myself. Um, I, I think fundraisers are much more verbal. And so when we have to we have to things put things on paper, it, it kind of stretches us. When you were working on that book, did, did something did something sort of surprise you that uh, you kind of had one of those aha moments? You're like, well, I don't know where that came from, but I actually got it down on paper and I realized it's a pretty sharp idea. What sort of what surprised you when you were putting that thing together? It wasn't it wasn't blockchain or crypto. It's really um, the whole notion around social impact investing and how much money uh, is being raised for that space. And, you know, um, the percentages that can be paid for money to do good. You know, sometimes they use that term social, you know, just make people have a better sense of what the organization is doing. I mean, I'm working with them a firm that does impact investing and they're trying to raise about $150 million for, I think seven or eight projects, you know, and none of that is charitable dollars that all that money's it. All the projects are wonderful projects to do good, but somebody's going to make a profit in it. Not like, you know, typical business profit. And there's a return on investment for whatever dollars are given by the donors or investors, if you will. And, uh, and then of course there's a, a comp payout to the fundraiser, me, it's not your typical retained agreement that we have. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more like, you know, hunting for money. The, the, the other thing I like to ask is, so you're standing in front of a room and there's always somebody who raises their hand first. So you're in a, you know, doing a breakout session. You're talking about the book. What's the, what's the typical pushback you get? Cause I mean, somebody who's sort of doing sort of forward thinking, um, you know, forecasting where the future might be. There's got to be somebody who's, what's that question people are sort of saying, nah, that's that's the, that's not clicking for me. What's that yeah, you sort know, of question? Yeah, I mean, it really starts with artificial intelligence. You know, I kind of, my, my thing is that, you know, I didn't say that fundraisers are going to become obsolete, but what I did say that, you know, there's going to be less of a need for fundraisers because of what artificial intelligence provides to an organization uh-huh. you know for example you know you live in a town um there's an animal shelter you go to pet smart you know you know there's 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 a thing called zettabytes there's so much data on people and so artificial intelligence is going to reach out to uh somebody who is you know in, in, in a, who's wealthy and say hey you know what there's an organization in your town that's uh, raising money for this, you, you might be interested in reaching out to them. So it's going to, it's, I think it's going to flip where donors are going to then be able to have more information and more of a choice than the charity, you know, than the nonprofit saying, Hey, did you know that we're an animal shelter in town? Oh, I didn't know you existed. You know, Oh, what are you doing? You know, I think it's going to flip the other way. And so the need for fundraisers to hunt for donors, isn't going to be as great you know, here in the near term. Maybe that. Okay. So I don't know if you're familiar with this. I'm sure you, you certainly know who Peter Thiel is, but in his mm-hmm. book in Peter Thiel's book, he talks about the idea of, um, 
what is what he calls competitive versus complementary technologies. And the way I see the way I see the sort of the path that fundraising has been on, and there's plenty of people in our space that have written, for example, I just read a dissertation by a good friend of mine where she makes this this very explicit observation that other people have certainly made. And, and, and it relates to something that I noted in the first book. And it's the idea of, of fundraising sort of being defined. If you draw a line between the initial and the subsequent gift. So don't think about the size of the gift or what its purpose is, but there's just an initial and every subsequent gift. Mm -hmm. And along the lines of what you're saying, technology has enabled us to basically technology and AI and all these sorts of different things are, increasingly making it unnecessary for fundraisers to have anything to do in my mind. And I think this is perhaps what you're saying. We may not need fundraisers to have anything to do with the initial gift. The initial mm -hmm. gift might just happen on its own. But if you think about where fundraising has, be has been over the last 50 years, we've literally become master technicians of securing the initial gift. And none of us know how to do the subsequent gift work. It's the reason why our renewal rates suck. Mm -hmm. It's because we don't know how to renew those gifts because that's the point at which the donor actually wants to have a meaningful relationship with a, with a human being, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that essentially where we're going to get where you've got essentially an entire cohort, mul perhaps multiple generations of fundraisers who've overly invested in initial gift strategies that, like you're saying, AI and other technology platforms are basically going to take care of. And that same generation has no idea how to renew that gift. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I think if you look at some of the job titles, the shift to job titles now, it's, you know, it's not... I always think major gift officers are bad titles, yeah, yeah. Who, but, you know, client relationship manager. So, you know, you then become a steward of that donor. You know, it's like Lisa said, you know, she wants somebody to, you know, be paying attention to the donor. And that's, that's what really, I think that's the key thing because, that, you know, you're, once you have a donor, you don't want to lose them. So you got to have somebody paying attention and minding the store, if you will. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Go and guess. Exactly. And I think that's why somebody like Lisa ruffles people's feathers because she's saying, look, there's plenty of, in I've got, first of all, I've got the money in the bank. I've got the, uh, the donor advised fund. Um, I'm going to figure out based on the available information where I want to put my money. I'm going to make that decision. And then once I make that decision, there sure as hell better be somebody who knows to take care of that relationship for my, my continued level of giving. But I think what the whole, the reaction is, is that, I mean, is that the essence of what donor intent is, is that the donor doesn't need us to determine where their first gift is going to go? Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, it's, you know, this is a relation-based business and I agree with that. I mean, I think she reached out, you know, her story and, you know, I heard it. It's, and if you, if, it, you know, your listeners, they should read, they should read her book. Sure. Her story, yes. But, you know, she says, you know, she called up one charity and it was a, going to make a seven figure gift to the charity. And, and, uh, she, that night that charity called up and asked to speak to her husband and said, do you realize that your wife just made this gift? You know? And like, she was aghast that they would do that. So, you know, so we say this and we think that people, <laughs> right. we think that people know how to deal with people, but that's a, you know, we make these assumptions, but the reality is some people just don't know how to have a conversation with somebody like, Lisa and uh, or any high net worth. Donors. I'm sorry, Paul. I have not. I got. I'm gonna have to text her here in a few minutes. <laughs> I haven't heard that story. So you're telling me that a charity inquired with her husband after she made a significant gift? 
Yeah, so yeah, and I double check with her, but this is, <laughs> okay. I believe, she called the charity. Yeah, there was, there's two stories. One of them is she called the charity, said she want to make a seven figure gift, and then later that day, the charity called up and asked to speak to her husband. Said, "Do you realize that your wife just made this commitment?" <laughs> the other, the other, so the other question was, she called the charity, said, "I want to make this gift, you know, a large gift," yeah. and the, the charity said. But I haven't, I haven't asked you for that gift yet. That I don't, I don't know what to do. So you know, people get stuck in these like traps of like this doesn't fit in my world. So. Right, it doesn't fit in my damn box. Yeah, it's like well, I. And she said, it, I think it took like seven months to close that second gift because they couldn't figure out like, well, but but we haven't we haven't asked you for that that money yet. Like this, that's not you know you're 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 one step ahead of us. And that's like I said, donors, you know. Nonprofits aren't driving the change. Non, the people with the money are driving the change, and that's my. And it, my but, but the thing is, and and there's and you know there's a lot of people who are listening to this, or there's people who maybe don't listen to this, um, won't listen to this. But that's only because we won't change those paradigms. The donors right. don't have to drive the decision, but it's because we won't get out of our freaking boxes mm-hmm. that they do. That they do sort of play that. If if we if we sort of would learn how to get on a level playing field with somebody like Lisa, build some rapport. Then every subsequent gift that she gives, you could have you could play a much more meaningful role in that decision. But we're so damn focused on that one gift at hand. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I could I could tell you so many stories. I mean, I, I in my last chapter, it's you know about uh, I interviewed a couple of donors, and you know probably half of them were like they're just so dis disenfranchised from fundraisers. You know, I had another donor. He was in. He was telling me a story. He has a, he's worth a couple hundred million dollars, and he's. Uh, says he has a poor man's car and poor man's clothes. He went to YMCA meeting somewhere. I won't tell you where in the country. And they were talking about, you know, the annual fund, like $1,500 gifts. So he's at this meeting and yeah. he said, well, what if, you know, you want to make the $25,000 gift? And they kind yeah. of ignored him, you know, yeah. and said, no, we're here about this. And, and see, that's the kind of mentality. People can't think out of the box and realize that, you know, uh, some people might have a, a tremendous capacity and you got to be willing to have those conversations. Hey, do you remember this was like 20? So th- yeah, I'm going to date myself when I get. So I came into the right before the turn of the century, right? That's when I started my fundraising career. Mm-hmm. And if you remember right then and there, that's when uh, the gentleman, he wrote the book, The Millionaire Next Door and The Millionaire yeah. Mind. Do you remember that? Yeah, and, sure. and, and they were telling us. And then I had a major donor who told me to. I remember sitting at a lunch table in Indianapolis and the gentleman told me, he said, learn how to read the financial section of the USA Today. And it was all about developing at the time that I came into, I feel like I'm sort of one of those last members of a generation that were told that the way you learn how to do this is based on intuition. It's not based on all this sort of data and science and predictive tools and all that sort of stuff. Have we sort of lost that, that, that I mean, I, I think I still have them. I don't know where it's at, but I think I've got copies of both of those books that you have to know how to sort of discern well where the wealth is. And you have to sort of know how this wealth plays out in their life. And it's not just because of the type of, you know, the Rolex watch that they do or do mm-hmm. not wear or the value of their car. Um, have we, and I, and I was talking to a colleague, a friend of ours uh, recently who was talking about intuition. Have we lost that intuition? I, I think we're losing it. I think I'm losing mo- it. I think we're losing. I think emotional intelligence is really important. You know, the more we're on zoom, the less we're going to have understand how to read you know, donors and stuff like that, you know, but it was the same thing, you know, it's not just, you know, I read all the time. So, you know, what's the project projections financially is with some hedge fund managers last summer. 
And they said, you know, they were concerned in Q3, Q4 about hyperinflation. So if you look at giving USA, you say, oh, money, people are giving a lot of money and more money is going to come. But you have people with money who are like a little apprehensive and they're going to start pulling back on their giving and where they put money and shoring. They'll shore themselves up first financially before they take care of a nonprofit. And so you have to. And so all these things are learned things, but you can't just operate in a vacuum um, and do things the way you, you've got. And that's a, kind of one of my things in a playbook that is you got to be agile. You got to adapt to the changing environment and it's changing so rapidly, you know, and it's hard to keep up with. And every time I mean, look at the Apex, um, Apex partners. I think they spend like two billion dollars to buy three CRMs and they just bought Network for Good, you know, yeah. so there's and they're UK based. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Paul. So okay. Uh, I, I think we can keep each other going, yeah. but we lose our listeners at 45 minutes. The name of your book, Paul, is The Future of Fundraising, How Philanthropy's Future is Here and Donors Dictate the Terms. Where would you like people to find that? And uh, the other question I like to ask is, is somebody's probably listened to our conversation today. Um, I get Usually my guests get more follow-up uh, than, than necessarily I do. So how do you want people to reach out to you? And who are you interested in hearing from? So, uh, you know, we... Um uh, the, the book is on Amazon. Uh, it's a Kindle version for seven ninety nine and nine ninety nine to buy the book, and mm-hmm. it's really got a lot. I think you know, put a lot of time into it during COVID. You know, good content in there about kind of where the future is going. You could reach me at Paul at highimpactnonprofit dot com, and you know, we we have um, you know really where I'm going to is trying to get into a more coaching model. Instead of the large firms charging $30,000 a month to do a campaign, you know, my feeling has long been, look, if I have the right people that I could talk to, we can get you to that dollar goal that you want at a very low cost basis, as long as you're willing to do what I tell you to do and and you're willing to work hard because this is not easy work. I mean, it's not easy, but it's it's hard work and you've got to have a thick skin, but it's uh, it's it's great work and great uh, satisfaction. Yeah, I won't even ask you because I think we already know who charges thirty thousand dollars a month to run <laughs> capital campaigns. I think we just need to teach people how to be rock stars themselves and get out of their way. Um, I think you probably concur with that, yeah. Paul. It has certainly been a pleasure to have you on the podcast here with me today. Um, you're always welcome back. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. My pleasure. I'm, I'm so grateful that you let me do this with you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing 
continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.